All right, if you would, take your Bible and turn to Titus chapter 2. If you have access to the Bible on your phone and you want to open that, that up, we're going to be looking at Titus chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. If you got a copy of the bulletin as you came in this morning, there's some great information about things that are going on here at Emmaus. If any of that sparks curiosity for you or you have questions, feel free to reach out to us. We want to be available to answer those questions for you. On the back of that bulletin, though, there are some sermon notes that might be helpful to you as we go through this time of looking at Titus chapter 2. I want you to know that at the end of our time, this morning with a sermon, you're going to have a chance to respond in three ways. The first way is you're going to have a chance to stand and sing with the choir behind us as we sing what's become one of my favorite new Easter songs, a song that I think will encapsulate a lot of what we're talking about this morning. And so your response to God's word this morning might just be at the end that you stand and sing with all your heart. There are going to be people available to pray with you at these doors to the side and down here at the front if you just need someone to pray with you. The other way that you can respond is that card that's in the seat back in front of you. It has a blank on it that just says, I need to talk to someone about faith. If God's working in your heart, and we're going to talk about a difficult subject this morning, but if God uses this time this morning and he speaks to your heart and you say, you know what, I just need to talk to somebody about what that preacher is talking about this morning, mark that on the card, and your response this morning might just be to put that in the offering plate at the end, and we will reach out with you, reach out to you, and, and talk to you about the things that we're discussing this morning. So I want you to know about that because some way you need to respond to God's word, not to my preaching, but to God's word this morning. Titus chapter 2. Let's start in verse 11, and we're going to read verses 11 through 14, but we're going to focus on 13 and 14 this morning. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This is the word of God. One of the most common questions that I face as a pastor, and this might go to the very top, at least in the top three, one of the most common questions I face is, Pastor, I don't really know if I'm saved. I'm having doubts. I'm not sure if I'm really a Christian. This isn't a question that comes around once a year. This is a question that comes around multiple times a month from people who are dealing with this question, facing these doubts. Am I really a follower of Christ? Usually it's because there was an experience early in life. Maybe you attended a revival service or a camp or a vacation Bible school. You had some sort of religious experience. You grew up in a church. And then you reach a point either as a teenager or an early adult, or maybe an older adult, where you look at your life and you say, am I really saved? And if you're here this morning and you're not particularly interested in church or religion, and you hear that word saved, I hope that what we talk about this morning will fill in that churchy word for you a little bit, what we're talking about. 
But this is something that so many people struggle with. Parents, you feel the weight of this because your kids talk about following Jesus and your kids talk about being baptized and then you hear the stories about how years later that kid comes back and says, well, I didn't know what I was doing. I have no idea if I'm really saved or not. And parents feel the weight of that. This is compounded. It's made a hundred times harder because of the part of the world that we live in. We live in an area where obviously there are so many churches around, and we live in a part of the world where there are so many people who have had some sort of church background, some sort of religious background, and then they reach a point in their life and they think, oh my word, is this really real? Is this really true of my life? And these aren't theoretical issues. These are things that show up in the Bible where we face these things. Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven, verse 21, that it's possible to call out, Lord, Lord, and yet you find that you really never meant that. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's possible to have some sort of religious expression in your life, but to not actually be made right with God. On the flip side of that, Ezekiel 13.10 says it's possible for someone to give you false security or false understanding about your relationship with God. In the Old Testament, there were prophets and they would come along and they would say, peace, everything's okay, don't worry about it, when there really was no peace. And we worry about this idea that someone would come along and say, oh, don't worry about it. live your life however you want, you're gonna be fine, God will work everything out in the end, it doesn't really matter. If someone says peace and there's really no peace, the danger of being misled in that situation. And some of you know the weight of living under these type of doubts about your salvation. The weight of living under these questions. And what it creates, it creates a pressure to make everything look okay. And so on the surface, you try to hold together this religious veneer, this religious expression, but under the surface, you're just eaten up with these doubts saying, man, is this really true? Is this really right? I, I don't think this is really me. Christianity is not fake it till you make it. This is not this idea that I just need to look religious and then maybe some way it's gonna work itself out in the end. That's not the idea. And so as we begin to talk about this question this morning, I wanna address a couple of things up front. Number one, it's very difficult. In fact, it's usually very unwise to make a judgment about someone else's standing before the Lord. We have to be very careful about this as we, as we get started this morning. The purpose this morning is not to look at your neighbor and make a judgment about them, it's to look at our own hearts and say, where am I in my relationship with the Lord? One of the fun things about the New Testament is Jesus constantly frustrated the religious people about telling them who was really going to be in the kingdom of God. And so we can make judgments about how we think that should work, and Jesus comes along and shows us different things. The other thing I wanna point out, and this is so important because, well, this is just me being self-therapeutic at this point. Doubting, having questions about salvation, is not the same as having questions, or having curiosities, or trying to make sense of the mystery of all this. And so, when I say doubt versus assurance, I'm not saying lack of questions versus absolute certainty. There's an element of faith here, and Christians and the church have not always done well with people who have questions or people who have doubts. And so I'm not here this morning to say if you have doubts, sorry you can't be a part of what's going on. In fact, that's kind of the opposite of what I'm saying. What we're trying to drill down on this morning is what is the foundation of my life? 
What is the foundation from which I make these questions? What is the foundation from which I live my life? And on your notes, I've listed three shaky foundations for living your life. What are three shaky foundations to have assurance about your standing before God? The first is past experiences. Now none of these, none of these three are bad in and of themselves, but they're not good enough on their own. Past experiences, so in other words, when someone says, are you a Christian? Or someone says, what is your relationship with God all about? If the only thing you can do is to point back to a past experience, five, 10, 20, 25 years in the past, and nothing else, that's a shaky foundation. If it was a prayer you prayed or something you did as a kid and there's been no other things going on in your life that have to do with the Lord, that's a shaky foundation to know what it is to be made right with God. The second thing is present emotions. If you are determining your relationship with God based on your present emotions, you are going to be a basket case. Uh, because our emotions go up and down. There are some days that the preacher feels really spiritual, and then there's a hundred other days that the preacher doesn't feel particularly spiritual. If you are depending on your emotions to tell you whether or not you're right with God, it's gonna be so unreliable, not to mention the fact that our emotions can be manipulated. This is what gets us into trouble a lot of time because you have that camp experience or that revival experience, and you had this great emotional experience and then you expect those emotions to sustain your spiritual life for the remainder of your life. And we realize, man, that just doesn't, that doesn't happen. So past experience, present emotions, future efforts. If you are determining your relationship with God by the fact that you're gonna get your life together in the future, at some point when all this junk passes by and you're finally able to focus on God, man, that's a shaky, that's a shaky foundation. If we're relying on past experience, present emotions, future efforts, those things alone to say I'm right with God, we realize where those doubts come in. We realize why people stay awake at night staring at the ceiling thinking, is this really real? Am I really saved? Do I really want to be a Christian? Do I really understand what's going on here? So we're gonna address that this morning from Titus chapter two. Three points, they all start with W. You're welcome, you're welcome. Titus chapter two, there are three signs that are given to us. There are three signs that are given to us that show what it is to be saved. The first one is waiting expectantly. This idea of anticipation. Look at the way that verse 12 ends, and then we'll get into verse 13. Verse 12 says that we are living in the present age. What does it mean to be living in the present age. I've got a picture up here, if it comes across, it may not come across well. Well, that's not bad, that worked out pretty well. The line on the bottom is this present age, and sometimes scripture will even say this present evil age. This is the world that we're living in. But you can see the first vertical line, that represents the coming of Jesus. That represents his birth, his death, his resurrection. With the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God began but we still live in this world. So scripture says we still live in this present age. The second vertical line represents the return of Christ, when he will come to make all things right. This present age will end, but the kingdom of God, the age to come, will continue on. And so we live in the great in-between. We live between the cross and the resurrection, and then finally the second coming of Jesus, the return of that. So we live in this present age. How do you live in this present age as a Christian? 
Well, it says you look. Some translations will say you wait. This is the idea of faith, that you're looking towards something. What are you looking toward? You're looking for the blessed hope. Depending on your religious background, blessed hope might be a pretty common term, or you may have never heard it before, but some religious backgrounds use that term a lot. The blessed hope, what is the blessed hope? It's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The appearing. Now this is an important word here, because the word appearing showed up in verse 11 as well. In verse 11 it said the grace of God appeared. That's the first coming of Jesus. That's when he came as a man. He came with his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. So we have that appearing. And then we have the appearing that we're looking toward. So we're looking in faith to the fact that Jesus will come back and he will make all things right. This is the Easter story. The Easter story is the fact that we look back to the appearing of Jesus, that he defeated sin and death, and at the same time, we look forward to the time that he will return and make all things right. If you're here, it doesn't really matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian, let's make sure we're, we're clear on this point. Our foundation, our standing before God, our hope in life is we believe that God came to earth as a man. He lived, he died for us like we sang about. He came back to life. He was dead and then he rose again. He ascended to heaven and one day he will return. Lest you sit in church year after year, year after year, year after year and not realize how crazy that is, Let's remember that this morning. Sometimes we say, oh yeah, Jesus came, he died, he came back to life, he'll come back one day. Do you realize how crazy that sounds to people who are not maybe from a Christian background? But that is our foundation. That is our hope, and this is the reason that is our hope. The reason that's our hope is because when we talk about faith, and don't ever forget this, when we talk about faith, we're not talking about blind faith. We're not talking about making a leap into the dark. There was an appearing of Jesus. He did die for us. He did rise again. And so we look to the future, not leaping into the darkness, not trying to say, oh my God, I hope this is true. We look to the future on the foundation of what Jesus has done for us. You can separate religion and you can separate people into two groups. This is really helpful as you try to make sense of, the, of kind of what you see in the world around us. You can separate people into two groups. The first group, all of the problems are outside me and the answer is within me. So there's all these problems in the world, but if I just look within me, I'm gonna be able to find the answer. In Christianity, the problem is inside me and the answer is from the outside. In Christianity, I'm broken. I've sinned against God, I've rebelled against him, I'm living for myself, I am broken inside, and the answer to that doesn't come from trying to be a better person, the answer to that comes from something that happened that I did not do. It comes from outside me. There's a couple of verses in Romans that make sense of this. Romans chapter eight, and Romans chapter eight is just a great place to go in general to, to know more about this, but Romans chapter eight verse 11 says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies 
through his spirit who dwells in you. The point of those verses is that my hope, my foundation, my relationship with God is built on what Jesus did. Because he died, because he rose again, because he will come again, I have hope. I have that foundation. So what does this tell you if you're battling doubts, if you're unsure about your salvation, if you're not sure if you're a Christian? Here's the question. Am I looking inside me for that stability? Am I looking inside me for that hope? Am I hoping that I can just become a person who has more faith? Or am I looking to Jesus? Titus 2.12, 2.13 says that my hope is based on where I'm looking. Am I looking inside me? Am I looking back to something I did in my life? Or am I looking right at Jesus and saying he is my only hope? Which leads us to the next point. So if we wait expectantly, then we will worship Jesus exclusively. The next part of verse 13 says that we are looking for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That phrase, great God and Savior, is an important phrase because it was used in the ancient world for rulers who wanted to appear as gods. So there were some rulers in the ancient world named Ptolemy and Antiochus and Julius Caesar. If you read those ancient documents, all of those rulers were called great God and Savior. It was a title that was known in the ancient world. And so what Paul is doing right here is he's taking on that title and he's giving it to Jesus as a way to say, you think your ruler is a great God and Savior. Let me show you the one who is truly the great God and Savior. So it's a shot at the Roman Empire is what it is here. But it's not only that, it tells us just exactly who Jesus is, that he is our great God. We're not here claiming that Jesus is a good person. We're not here claiming that Jesus is a good teacher. We're here claiming that Jesus is our great God. Now there is a lot of controversy about this phrase up here, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Some people read it as two parts. So one person, great God, one person, Savior. So there's God and Savior, and they're separated. The way the language works, the way that it's put together, is it's not two separate people, it's descriptions of the same person, Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ, who is our great God, and is our Savior. The New Testament presents Jesus that he is the creator, and he is the judge. He is the one who forgives sins, and he is the one that we worship. He is the one who takes on the attributes of God, and he receives the names of God. Jesus is not just an option, He's not just something or someone that we hedge our bets on. Jesus is God. He is the one who is worthy of all of our worship. And here's why this is so important. We live in a trade-in, trade-up society. If I don't like my barber or my point guard or my church or my spouse, I just trade them in and move on to something else. Maybe there's another better option out there. Jesus doesn't work that way. And on top of that, and I was reminded of this a couple of weeks ago in a conversation with a friend, but on top of that, Jesus is not one priority in our lives among many other priorities. The word priority, when it originally came into the English language, was only singular. There were no plural priorities. That would have sounded dumb. Why, if it's a priority, how can you have multiple ones of them? But if we're not careful, we make Jesus a priority in our life. And if you make Jesus a priority in your life, 
you're gonna be miserable because you're always going to be juggling these priorities. Students, if you make Jesus a priority in your life, at some point he's not gonna seem quite as important. We don't fit Jesus into our schedule. He's the one that shapes everything about our lives. And so we come to him, we worship him, we give all of ourselves to him. How can I know if I'm a Christian? Well, if Jesus is kind of part of your life that you try to fit in when it's convenient and maybe it's gonna work out and if it, you know, if it seems a good option, I'll try to fit him in there, that's a shaky foundation. But if you say he is God, he is Savior, I will worship him alone, that's a solid foundation that we understand who he is. And then that leads us to number three. So we wait for him in faith based on who he is and what he's done we worship him, not as a priority, not as an option. We worship him as God and Savior. And then number three, we work eagerly. So you get to verse 14, you find that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. For what purpose? Why are we saved? Why do, why do Christians even talk about salvation? It's because we are being purified for himself as a people for his own possession who will be zealous for good deeds. That phrase there, for his own possession, it's an Old Testament phrase that refers to Israel, to the people of God. Salvation, Jesus died for us, for me, for you. There is an individual component, but it is not primarily individual. And it is not primarily private. Jesus saves us and he makes us part of the church so that then we will live our faith out in public. One of the ways we can tell if we've experienced that salvation is when God places us in the church and then he drives in us this desire to live for him, to do good. So there's those two parts. There's for his possession being part of the church and then there's the doing the good works. One of the ways in the history of the church that you knew that you were a believer, that you found that foundation, is you were part of the church. And you say, wait a second, being a part of the church doesn't make you a Christian. Yeah, I agree with that. Being a part of, that's, that's depending on some sort of religious experience. But being a Christian does make you part of the church. Because it is God's plan to shape us. It is God's plan to remind us of the gospel. It is God's plan to show us the goodness of his salvation. And so if I have no desire to be a part of the people of God, that's an indicator that I need to look at my heart. I need to look at my soul and I need to say, why is that the case? Now, I know you may have been hurt. I want to be really careful about this. I know you may have been hurt by church. And I know you may see this as just kind of some sort of institution or something that kind of comes and goes in your life. And I am not for a second judging your salvation based on your church attendance. But what I am saying is that you need to look in your heart and say, where is my desire? And if my desire is not to gather with God's people and worship, that's an indicator of spiritual health that I need to take a close look at. Because when God saves us, he doesn't just save us to have me and God experience. He saves us so that we become part of the church that he purchased with his blood. And when we do that, we are driven to do good works. We are driven to live as part of the people of God. In, in Hebrews chapter 10, there's this great phrase. Um, in Hebrews chapter 10, around verse 24, 25, it talks about how we meet to, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. The reason God shapes us as the people of God is so that we will live for him, and we do that as the day appears, as the day approaches. 
We live in a world where people are fascinated with the end times. They talk about the end of the world. You watch the news for any amount of time. God bless you if you try to do that, but you know, you watch the news, you see these things, and people talk about the end of the world, they talk about the end times. We've been living in the end times since Jesus' resurrection. And you can spend time reading newspapers and blogs and watching TV, but the way that we really know what it is to be made right with God is if you really wanna care about the end times, do good, worship with the church, love your neighbors, share the good news of Jesus. That's where you find that God's salvation is working in us. So how do I deal with my doubts about salvation? Am I part of the church? Is my life connected with other believers? Am I doing good works to build God's kingdom, not my own? So as we come to the end of our time this morning, I want you to do something in your heart. Because when we talk about waiting, worshiping, working, every one of us can find an element there that we struggle with. And what we have to do is we have to distinguish between are those things not part of my life because I'm not really a Christian? I've been faking this. I've been going along depending on myself, not on Jesus. Is that the reality? Or is it just the fact that I've never grown in that salvation? And this is an important distinction to make because we're trying to decide Do I need to be made right with God? Do I need to give my life fully to him? Or do I need to start growing spiritually so I can realize just what God has really done in my life? Am I waiting? Am I living by faith, looking toward Jesus? Is my life driven by him as God and Savior and Lord? He determines everything about my life. He's not just a priority among others. And am I working for him as part of the church? Not to earn that salvation, but because I'm so overcome by what he's done for me. As he resurrects us, we live out that resurrection for the world around us. So here in just a second, I'm going to pray for us. After I pray, you've got three options. One, you've seen about the resurrection with all your heart because you know it to be true. Number two, you just need to pray with someone or maybe pray by yourself in part of the building. You'll have a chance to do that. Number three, you say, you know what? It's been a long time since I took a look at my spiritual condition and I need to talk to somebody about that. And the most important thing you can do is just fill out that card, mark that box, put it in the offering plate, and we will contact you to have that conversation. Do not leave without considering your relationship with God. Let me pray for us. Father, I know that when I lay awake at night staring at the ceiling, asking hard questions, suffering from those doubts, my goal in coming here this morning is not to plant unfair doubt in someone's heart. My goal in coming here this morning is that we would look at your word and that we would ask those questions, that we wouldn't continue based on experiences or emotions or efforts. God, we would look to Jesus. The only hope we have for life, the only hope we have for salvation comes through Jesus Christ because he died for us and he rose again and we need the power of the resurrection in our lives and in our world and God, would you do that among us today? God, may we respond right now to how you're working in our hearts and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.